Great to be here this morning. I want to have you watch a little video here in just a moment. So I'm just going to talk to you briefly from here. And then uh, there's a little video that will bring some points home that will lead into the message. But first, I just want to say it's great to be here in this beautiful location. Of course, amongst very young and beautiful people, right? So uh, it's great to be here with all of you. Really appreciate Pastor David and his wife Sue and their great hospitality to us. And uh, Sue made a great pie for us. That was just awesome. And Dave's quite the cook, just so you know, by the way. So um, they did a great job. We had a great time with you folks. And thanks you, thank you for letting us uh, be here with you and sharing some time with you and here um, with the church. You know, it's, it's great to know someone like Pastor David who is very committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ, very committed to the Word of God, to the Bible, and the impact that God can have on our lives as we study it and respond to it. And I think it's important for us to recognize that that's what we're to be centered on, the Word of God and the mission of God. And oftentimes, uh, we, we lose track of those two things. We get sidetracked from the Word of God, and we get sidetracked sometimes from the mission of God. I'm going to focus more on the second one of those issues here this morning, and talk about the fact that the church is really supposed to be a hospital, not a rest home. It's supposed to be a hospital, not a rest home. And the church is supposed to be a movement, not a building. Right? We're supposed to be moving, not just be stationary, not just be status quo. We're supposed to be running straight toward the gates of hell. And a church is supposed to be a life-saving station, not a club. And with that in mind, I'd like you to watch this brief video, and then we'll kind of pick up from there. On a dangerous seacoast where shipwrecks often occur, there was once a crude little life-saving station. The building was no more than a hut, and there was only one boat. But the few devoted members kept a constant watch over the sea. With little to no thought for themselves, they went out day and night, tirelessly searching for the lost. Some of those who were saved and various others in the surrounding areas wanted to become associated with the station and give their time and money in effort to support the work. New boats were brought in and new crews were trained. And the little life-saving station grew. Some of these new members of the life-saving station were unhappy that the building was so crude and poorly equipped. They felt that a more comfortable place should be provided as the first refuge of those who were saved from the sea. They replaced the emergency cots with beds and put better furniture in the enlarged building. Now the life-saving station became a popular gathering place for its members, and they began to use it sort of as a club. Fewer members were now interested in going to sea on life-saving missions, so they hired lifeboat crews to do this work. The life-saving motif still prevailed in this club's decor, and there was a memorial lifeboat in the room where the club initiations were held. About this time, a large ship was wrecked off the coast, and hired crews brought in boatloads of cold, wet, half-drowned people. They were dirty and sick, and some of them were foreigners. 
The beautiful new club was in chaos immediately. The property committee hired someone to rig up a shower outside the club where victims of the shipwreck could be cleaned up before coming inside. The outsiders made the life-saving station extremely dirty. At the next meeting, there was a split in the club membership. Most of the members wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities because they felt that they were unpleasant and a hindrance to the normal social life of the club. But a small number of members insisted upon life-saving as their primary mission and pointed out that they were still called a life-saving station. After all, the dissenting group's members were voted down and told that if they wanted to save lives, they could begin their own life-saving station down the coast. So they did. As the years went by, however, the new station experienced the same changes that had occurred in the old station. It evolved into a club, and yet another life-saving station was found. History continued to repeat itself, and if you visit that eastern seacoast today, you will find a number of exclusive clubs along that shore. Shipwrecks are still frequent in those waters, but most of the passengers drown. Kind of makes a point, doesn't it? I've watched that video a number of times and it still gets to me. It still gets to me because you see it happen all the time, over and over again. The only way that we can save lives is we have to get out of our comfort zone and we have to get a little bit wet. The problem is, I don't like getting wet and I don't like getting out of my comfort zone. I don't know about you, but even after 30 years of ministry, I would still rather stay in my comfort zone. I'd rather hang out with people that I know and people that I get along with. I'd rather hang out with people that I feel comfortable with. And and to be quite honest, I'd rather do what I want to do when I want to do it. I mean, if, if I just had my way, that's who I would be and that's what I would do. And so I have to make a conscious effort to get out of my comfort zone and to cross over and engage with people that maybe I don't know very well or maybe even people I don't like particularly well. I remember uh, one of the first big crossovers I had to make. I was in junior high school. I think it was seventh grade, maybe eighth. And I was raised Episcopalian. Some of you won't know what that is. That's okay. It's kind of the ugly stepsister of the Catholic Church. But I I was raised Episcopalian. And um, so I I didn't come to Christ until I was 17. And when I was in junior high, I went to this big, huge public junior high school. had about 500 students in my grade. We had 6th, 7th, and 8th together. So there was about 1,500 students. And they had dances, boy-girl dances in junior high. If you can imagine. And so, you know, my parents, they were good parents, good people, still are today. But they let me go to this dance. I look back at it now, I think that's just kind of craziness. And we went to the dance, and it had a huge dining hall. I mean, like four times the size of this room, if you can imagine, for a school that size. And when you went to the dance, it was funny because on the one side of the room were all these pretty girls. And on the other side of the room were all these kind of nerdy-looking guys. At least I fit in that category. And in between was this vast expanse, right? And what you had to do, you spent the whole time sweating under your armpits, trying not to show it, thinking about, you know, crossing over that great void, that vast expanse, because everybody knew as soon as you start walking over what was coming. 
You know, they knew that you were going over to ask somebody to dance. They also knew what her response was because they could see you walking back with your head down, empty-handed, you know. I, I had some practice at that in case I didn't make the point. But the whole point of that is, is that it's hard to cross over, isn't it? It's hard to cross over a void when we're uncomfortable. We all fear the crossover. I want to give you a definition of the crossover for our purposes this morning. It's leaving our comfort zone to make a relational connection, especially for the purpose of sharing Christ. Okay, so it's leaving our comfort zone to make a relational connection. It's leaving our preferred environment to reach out to somebody we don't know, or at least don't know well. Now, it could be crossing some kind of cultural divide. Just like that big cafeteria, there was this great big divide. There are cultural divides, sometimes even within a church, but especially between the church and its culture. Maybe it's somebody with different values than you have. You ever meet somebody who has a different value system than you? And it's hard to cross over that barrier. What about a different generation? Many times young people are afraid to talk to us, and I think even more, we're a little bit afraid to talk to them. You know, and so there's this generational divide. What about a different ethnic group or people group? We're maybe not sure what to say, how to interact. And, and the question is, have you ever been uncomfortable making one of those crossovers? Let me ask you this. Have you ever been uncomfortable trying to share the gospel? So let me have you rate yourself from 1 to 10 on a few scenarios here, okay? So just in your own brain, kind of rate yourself. A 10 would mean, hey, this is better than a box of chocolates. I mean, this is pretty good. Very comfortable for me. A 1 would be, I'd rather stick my wet finger in a light socket than do what you're asking me to do. Okay, so very (laughs) uncomfortable for you. All right, introducing yourself to a stranger, 1 or 10. Introducing yourself to a stranger. How about this one? Sitting next to someone new at church. I remember a couple times where somebody insisted that they owned a particular chair in our church. And the one time I literally got on my hands and knees and started looking underneath the the chair. And they said, what are you doing? I said, I'm trying to find your name. You know, where does it belong Um, in the church? Um, How about this? Getting to know someone from a different ethnic group. You know, saying, not just saying hello, but really trying to get to know that person. What about shifting? Here, this is where it starts to get like, give me a light socket, okay? It, it's shifting a friendly conversation to a spiritual conversation. You know, how do I bridge that? That becomes very uncomfortable. Or what about sharing the gospel with a close friend at work? Or maybe with that family member that you know is probably going to get a little bit irate with you if you bring this up at Thanksgiving. Well, in the Gospels, Jesus is regularly crossing over boundaries to make a crossover to engage with people who were different than he was, people who were disconnected from God. You can think of some with me, if you would, just kind of maybe let them pop into your head. Who are some people that Jesus connected with, who he crossed over to reach them even though they were disconnected with God? People like Matthew, right? People like Zacchaeus. People like the uh, demoniac who was actually chained out in the, in the open. What about the lepers that he reached out to? One of his most famous stories is a story about a crossover. It's called the story of the Good Samaritan. 
And there's these two religious guys who love to go to church, but when they had the opportunity to cross over and help somebody in need, what did they do? They said, no, I'm going to stay in my comfort zone. I'm going to do what I've planned to do. I can't be bothered to cross the street. But then a Samaritan came along, and he was willing to cross over. And so he did, and he helped this man. He invested in this man's life. He crossed over because he wanted to demonstrate the love of God to this individual. Now, Jesus tells that story in response to a question that went like this. What is the greatest law? And Jesus says, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that's to love your neighbor as yourself. And the guy responds and said, well, who's my neighbor? And Jesus tells that story. And basically, it's anybody who needs us to cross over. I would suggest to you that to love your neighbor, you have to cross over. You can't love your neighbor and stay on your side of the street. We've been enjoying getting to know this lady named Dee who lives across the street from us in our um, little subdivision where we live in Salem. We've just been there about two months. And Dee's a, a widow lady. And uh, I got to know her first because I kind of went and checked out the house first. And now Donna's getting to know her. Already invited her to church. And kind of making that crossover. And getting to know her, but also making those uncomfortable steps to say, hey, uh, my husband's going to be preaching at this church in Salem. Would you want to come? And, and, you know, starting to build that relationship that way. Well, one of the best crossover stories in the Bible is in John chapter 4. And I'd like you to turn there, if you would, John chapter 4. As you turn there, I want to give you the context. John chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, I'm going to just summarize that passage. It says that Jesus, Jesus was becoming popular. People were responding to him. It said many believed in him. But then it said Jesus didn't give himself to them because he knew what was in their heart. He knew what was in the heart of men. And that's how chapter 2 ends. And I believe he's setting up the context for what comes in chapter 3 and chapter 4. So Nicodemus and the woman at the well are two examples of Jesus knowing what's in the heart of men. In the one case, we have Nicodemus, high on the socioeconomic scale, very religious, very upstanding, a moral man. But Jesus knew what was in his heart. He knew that he needed to be born again. And we have that whole story in John 3. And John 4, interestingly enough, we go to the exact opposite end of the spectrum. To a woman who's living in sin, been married five times, not really religious much at all, at the total opposite end of the socioeconomic scale, and Jesus also knows what's in her heart, and that is that she needs to be born again. And the point of John 3 and 4 is to say Jesus knows this about all men. Everyone is lost and anyone can be saved. And that applies to you and it applies to me. So with that as a context, we kind of get into the detail. John chapter 4, verses 4 to 7. It says, now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from his journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. We'll come back to that in a moment. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me something to drink? So we see here, Jesus had to go to Samaria. It was urgent. He had a divine appointment with a woman, a Samaritan woman, that was going to become a catalyst 
for the gospel, that was going to share the gospel with many others. And so Jesus sits down, and when she comes onto the scene, he initiates the conversation. He doesn't wait for her to talk. She probably never would have. But he initiates the conversation. He asks the first question. And it's interesting to look at her response. Because basically what she's asking him is, why would you cross over a cultural barrier to talk to me? Look at what she says. You are a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And then we have this little commentary from John that, hey, Jews and Samaritans didn't really get along too well. And so she wants to know, Jesus, why are you crossing over this cultural barrier? And I I think she's wondering, you know, is this another man who just wants to use me? That's what most men did with this woman. Or is this another Jew who wants to condemn me? Because that's what the other men did. If they didn't want to use her, they wanted to condemn her. Well, Jesus responds and says, look, I'm crossing over because I have something for your benefit. Look at verse 10. He said, look, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. He goes on in verses 13 and 14 to say, everyone who drinks this water that is in the well, they're going to be thirsty again. But if you drink the water I give you, you're never going to thirst. Indeed, the water I give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. In other words, what he's saying is, I'm not crossing over to get something from you. I'm crossing over to give something to you. I want to do something for your benefit. And you want to tuck that away. I think it's part of what we need to do when we cross over to help people see we're not crossing over so that we can say, hey, look at me, I won someone to Christ. We're crossing over because we want them to experience new life. We want them to have what we already have. This woman is a hated Samaritan. She's living in sin, and and no respectable man would do what Jesus did, at least in cultural terms. No one would cross over to talk to her. Jesus had every excuse to play it safe. And sometimes that's what we do. We, we make excuses to play it safe. But instead, he crossed all the barriers that he needed to cross to share with this woman the gospel. To say, look, there, there's a hope that you don't know about, and I want you to have it. He wants to give her a new life. In his view, there shouldn't be any barrier to the gospel. There shouldn't be any barrier that gets in the way of God's love. Now, you'll notice the woman tried to avoid people because of her sin. We saw that already. She was coming at the sixth hour, which was just an odd hour to come in their culture. She did that on purpose so that she would miss the other woman of the town. There basically was boundaries she didn't want to cross. She didn't want to talk to certain people. And you know what? There were boundaries her neighbors didn't want to cross. They didn't want to talk to her either. They didn't want anything to do with this scum of a woman. But Jesus crosses over her discomfort. And he brings her back to her real need. It's very interesting. He basically says, look, you don't want to talk about this, but we need to have a conversation about your life. So he says, go call your husband and come back. Doesn't seem like a a very uh, damning question out of the gate, but it becomes that because she says, I have no husband. I have no husband. Jesus is breaking down 
the ice. It's, it's kind of interesting to see what happens next. Jesus, I, I think, maybe chuckled just a little bit and said, yeah, you know what, you're right. When you say you have no husband, the fact is you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. You know, I'd say what you said is pretty accurate. <laughs> you know, I think he, he probably appreciated her honesty but also was chuckling a little bit about the fact that she withheld a little bit of the story. And basically what he's doing here is saying, look, even though this is going to be hugely uncomfortable, you need to see the truth about you, about yourself. You need to see that. And so he crosses this line of tactfulness. And I would suggest this is the line that we least want to cross, right? This line of tactfulness. And he crosses it because he wants to redeem her life. That's what love does, by the way. Love says, I love you too much to leave you where you are. I'm willing to cross a line, even if it makes me look untactful. I want to cross this line because I know that Christ can redeem your life. He can change your story. There's nothing admirable about leaving someone in their sin. You know, sometimes I congratulate myself. I almost hurt my arm patting myself on the back because I was tactful enough I didn't upset this person. And sometimes I need to be reminded, you know, that wasn't necessarily the most loving thing to do, just to leave them in their sin. So this woman is exposed. Her failure is revealed. I don't have a husband. Jesus says, no kidding. And by the way, just as a side note, Jesus knows your life story just like he knew hers. Knows every aspect of it. He knows your heart. He sees behind the mask. And at first that seems like really bad news, like, You know, could I put up some kind of shield of lead and keep God from knowing what's in my brain? But it's actually really good news because in spite of the fact that he knows your story, he still wants to redeem it. In fact, he came and died on the cross so he could do exactly that. You see, when we talk about salvation, we're talking about the fact that Jesus came to remove my sin, not to help me hide it. He didn't come to make it easy for me to hide my sin. He came so that I could bring it out in the open and dump it at the cross and leave it there and say, praise God, I don't have to deal with that anymore. And so I can be transparent. I can be vulnerable. I can cross over from death unto life. And you can do the same. You see, coming to this church isn't about figuring out the best way to hide who I am. It's it's recognizing here's a place where I can be safe revealing who I am. And I'm going to be loved in spite of my sin, not when I get rid of it. And they're going to help me come to Christ. Well, it's interesting, when things became uncomfortable, this woman did what most people do. And some of you will chuckle because this happens to you at work. You know, you're starting to share Christ with a guy, a guy at work or a gal at work, and somehow the conversation got to that point, and you're pretty excited, and it's starting to get personal. You're starting to hone in on their relationship with God, and they do what this woman does, and that is they change the subject. Okay, look at what she says. Sir, I, I see you're a prophet. Our fathers worship on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. She doesn't want to talk anymore about her personal relationship with God. She wants to talk about religion. You know, well, why are there so many different denominations out there? You ever get that question? 
why do you believe different than this person does? Or, or what about homosexuals? What about them? You know, what's God going to do about them? And what about, you know, and they try to change the subject. Why? Because they don't want to talk about themselves. And that's what this woman was trying to do. Her question was really a smokescreen because she didn't really want to deal with the issue. Her sin, her shame, her broken relationship with God. And that's what you'll find as you cross over. She'd rather talk about religion. Well, Jesus didn't let her get away with that. It's interesting. He doesn't let her get away with that. And he crosses a major line here. This is the line that you dare not cross in the United States of America in 2015. You better not cross this line. It's probably going to cost you your job. Okay? In fact, it does cost Jesus his life even back then. But Jesus declared, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Look at this next statement. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. You're a bunch of spiritual ignoramuses. All right? Uh, He didn't say it that callously, but we worship what we do know. Why? For salvation is from the Jews. We know truth that you don't know. And then he goes on to say this. Yet a time is coming and now has come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. He crosses the line from tolerance to intolerance and from pluralism to exclusivism. And he says, look, there's one way and you don't have it right. You're on the wrong path and you need to get on the right path. The answer is not mere tolerance. The answer is love. I mentioned in Sunday school, I have a friend from high school. His name is Dave. He lives in Denver. And Dave's a homosexual. And he's been living that lifestyle for a long time now. And we have some interesting conversations, um, especially over Facebook. And it's been interesting. Sometimes it's on his wall. And, you know, I have a whole gang of people ganging up on me and Sometimes it's on my wall, and it's interesting even to to see how some of the Christians that I know join in that conversation. But Dave's big issue from the very beginning is that he wants me to be more tolerant. And I said, Dave, I'm not going to become more tolerant because I don't tolerate you. I love you. I love you right where you are for who you are. That's never going to change. I don't care if you come to Christ and reject homosexuality. I'm not going to love you any more or any less. I love you as much as I can right now. That may seem odd to you, but I think that's what Jesus would have me do, is love him right where he is. He knows the truth. I tell him the truth. I cross that line. When I do, it becomes very uncomfortable. Sometimes uh, he uses unbelievable language to express his displeasure with me. He is very articulate when it comes to the art of profanity. (laughs) Okay? But you know what? It's worth it. I've had probably five or six times when Dave has said, why don't you just unfriend me? I said, Dave, I already told you I'm your friend for life. You can unfriend me if you want, but I'm still going to be your friend. And so it's been interesting to watch that develop. I, I told Dave this. I said, tolerance is a cheap substitute for love. Now, if you don't think that's the case, I want you to imagine that I write this Valentine card to my wife on February 14th. Here it is. My dearest wife, I tolerate you more than you could ever know. (laughs) It gets better. I have tolerated you from the first day I saw you. No one tolerates you more than I do. 
Can I tell you something? My wife would never tolerate that. She would never tolerate that. And here's the point I want you to get. Jesus is not just tolerating this woman. He's entering her story so that he can love her and reconnect her back to God. And the only way that it can happen is she has to get real with God. He has to cross this line of tactfulness. There can't be charades. There can't be mass. No more excuses. No more blame shifting. She has to own her stuff in spirit and in truth. That's what it means. Honestly and wholeheartedly. It has to be genuine. The same thing is true for you. It has to be genuine repentance from your heart owning your stuff, no excuses about how your parents raised you. It's on you, what you've done with your life, and you come to God and say, you know what, God, I've trashed my life. I didn't mean it to go this way, but it's there. Will you clean up my mess? I can't do it myself. Only Jesus can make me right. That's the gospel. This is the key issue. The only way she can cross over to a new life is to make it personal. She has to come clean with God. And the same thing's true for me and for you. And I'll just throw this out there. Have you ever come clean with God? No baloney, just God, you know what? This is the truth about me. Well, she's not quite ready to cross that line. And she has one more objection, and and really it's just procrastination. She tries to delay the decision. She says, well, I know that Messiah is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything. I'll just wait for him. (laughs) Boy, does she have a rude awakening. Jesus responds, I'm him. I am, important that he worded it that way, I am he. Lady, this is the moment you've been waiting for. This is your moment of truth. Well, had to blow her mind. She had to be shocked, surprised. But she's not the only one surprised. This is where it gets interesting. Not accidentally. There's nothing in the Bible by accident. We, we get a, the side story comes in. Now the disciples, they're surprised to find him talking with this woman, but no one dared ask him about it because they were just kind of afraid. I think they knew they were going to get some kind of instruction if they questioned him, and uh, so they didn't. But they can't believe that he crossed over. Now, that begs the question, how could they be surprised? They were his closest followers. They're in the inner circle. They'd seen him crossing over, over and over and over again, right? So why were they surprised? I think because they had the same struggle we have. They lost sight of the mission. They'd become inward arrow focused instead of outward focused. And that's exactly what happens in churches. I pastored at the same church for 21 years, and I can tell you the greatest amount of energy I had to expend, and David, I don't know if this is true for you here, but for me at, at Lakewood Park Baptist Church in Auburn, Indiana, the greatest effort I put in was in helping to keep the arrows out, 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 instead of always pointed in. We had so many programs going on. We had men's ministry that was really quite good. We had a women's ministry that was fantastic. We had a great women's ministry director, two of them, during the time I was there. They both did a fabulous job. You know, you have youth ministry, Bible studies, you know, ABS, as we call them, adult Bible studies on Sunday morning, worship services, you know, community outreach events and whatever. And it can be so easy to get caught up in all these things that are happening. We had a, a Christian school, and that absorbed a lot of our time and energy. And it's very easy for the arrows to go like this, right? And that's why I showed in Sunday school that it takes 70 adults to reach one adult for Christ in an established church 
where it takes three adults to reach one for Christ in a new church plant. Because those arrows come inward. And I think that's what happened here. Churches are supposed to be marching toward the gates of hell, not away from them. Well, the disciples are shocked at the boundaries that Jesus crossed. I think they would have been more shocked if they knew the boundaries that the woman was crossing. Look at what happens here in John 4, 28. She leaves her water jar, I think is significant, a change in her value system. The woman goes back to the town and talks to the very people she was trying to avoid. And she says, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Notice again the change of values. She makes an open and public confession. She engages the very people she was trying to avoid. I think this woman had crossed over. I think somewhere in her, she's converted. And she moves out of her comfort zone to make a relational connection. Exactly what she wouldn't do before. She puts herself in a vulnerable position. And she takes a huge risk. Now, the result is reproduction and multiplication. The gospel doesn't stop with her. Look at what happens as a result. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. So strictly because of her testimony, many come to believe. He told me everything I ever did is what the testimony was. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. I love this part of the story. And I have to ask, by the way, did the gospel stop with you? This woman didn't let it stop with her. It kept going. She passed it on. Has the gospel stopped with you? Do you have any children in the faith? Any grandchildren in the faith? In other words, you led someone to Christ who turned around and led someone else to Christ. I read a book in which a guy that was uh, leading a movement in China was able to trace 36 generations of believers through one man's testimony. So in other words, he led someone to Christ, who led someone to Christ, who led someone to Christ. That passed on for 36 generations. Wow. Blows my mind. Don't see that too often. Because she crossed over, the woman, they crossed over. A bunch of Samaritans put their faith in a Jewish Messiah and even recognized something the disciples didn't recognize, that he was the Messiah or the Savior of the world. So here's where I I suggest we should stop and, and really reflect on you and me. What's your willingness and what's my willingness to cross over? Because listen, there's times where like you, I'd rather stick a wet finger in a light socket than to talk to the person on the airplane sitting next to me about Jesus. Because you know what? I just want to sleep. And I don't want to have one more discussion about, you know, this person's spiritual opinions about all these things. You know what I mean? Sometimes it just gets old. It just gets old. Individually, how willing are you to cross over? Will you cross the aisle to welcome somebody new to church? Will you cross the street to talk to your neighbor? Will you cross over your prejudice to reach someone who's radically different than you? You know what? It's helped break down prejudice in me to maintain a friendship with Dave. Dave doesn't understand how much good he's doing me. Because I have to learn how to love someone who stands for everything I stand against. That's not easy. 
But you know what? It's not just that Dave needs to change. He does. He needs to be saved. But I need to change. God's still redeeming stuff in me. Because, I, I mean, honestly, there's, there's some people I see, and sometimes it might be a person that I know is gay, and there are times when I'm like, ugh. And I need to deal with that, ugh, as soon as I feel it. Me and God need to have a conversation, real quick conversation, so that I can be reminded that Jesus died for him or her, just like he died for me. Are you willing to cross over a different ethnic group, a different generation, a different sexual orientation? Right now, my wife gets irritated with me. On my phone, I have Duolingo. It's an app, and I'm learning Spanish. And uh, I'm always using it, trying to get it. According to the app, I'm 27% fluent in Spanish. <laughs> according to my wife and according to me, I'm about 2%. You know, I can say adios, and that's about it. But, you know, I'm trying to do that. Why? Because I know a number of the churches that we'll be planning are going to be Hispanic churches with Spanish speakers. And so I want them to know I at least care enough to try to learn their language. You know, it's not just about saying, oh, we planted a church. It's about getting to know those people and letting them be a part of my life. Our vision, I think I have this on the, bring this up on the screen, is is to ignite a multi-ethnic church planting movement in the western region of North America. That's what we want to do. And you can see the map with the multicolors is designed to represent all those multiple ethnic groups that live here. We, we learned in Sunday school that there's 487 ethnic groups in the U.S. today. By the way, some, of, some people in church are all gung-ho about reaching unreached people groups. Do you know that studies are showing that almost every single one of them has a population that lives here in the U.S. now? We can reach unreached people right here in the U.S., so, you know, we, we made this decision to move from Indiana to cross over, so to speak, to Oregon because we want to be involved in crossing those cultural barriers and helping to multiply the gospel to the people who live here in this part of the country. So what barriers does God want you to cross? Here's a, a few suggestions. I'll give you five. Pray. Look at your prayer list. Are you willing to cross over in how you pray and not just pray for Aunt Susie's hairdresser's brother's sister who has a hung toenail, you know, but, but pray for somebody who's lost and doesn't know Jesus Christ. Now, some of you won't like that sarcasm, but I don't know how it is here. It was difficult to get people in my church to pray for unsaved people instead of always praying about somebody who's sick. We should pray for the one but we got to pray for the other. It's not either or, it's both and. But oftentimes that one side of the column is so weak, it's so small. Think of one person who needs you to cross over. How could you break the relational ice? And, and just share your story. If you don't know how to share your story in two or three minutes, you need to learn how. To share your story. Give. Cross over with your wallet. Go. Before you send your money, does God want to send you? And so there's some things that you can do. And I'll just show you this as a church and then we'll close. Some things you can do as a church. Continue to develop a loving environment. You know, I sense that you have that here. Develop that further so when new people come in, they know that they're welcomed regardless of what they're doing, regardless of their past. You're going to love them to a new future. 
um, a multiplication mindset, missions and church planning, an outward focus with your resources, engage with a people group. Maybe look at who's around you and say, how can, how can we engage? I want to close with a familiar story. It's the story of the prodigal son. And if you look on the screen, you'll see the context. I won't read it all. But a bunch of Pharisees are trying to figure out why Jesus is hanging out with sinful people. And so he tells three stories to answer that question. You guys remember the story? It's a story of a lost coin, a lost sheep, and a lost son. But there's a difference in the first two stories and the third one, a significant difference. In the first two stories, the person who lost something goes on an all-out search to find it, right? But in the third story, have you ever noticed no one went looking for the son? And we know it's not the father's issue because the father loved the son and welcomed him home. Well, right in the middle of that story, verse 12, I think we see a key factor. When the prodigal demanded his inheritance, the father, it says, divided his property between who? Them. So he gave all of his wealth to his two sons. So who had the responsibility and the resources to go out and find the prodigal? It was the older brother. And Jesus is telling the story to, the, to these Pharisees, and the point is not so much that God loves the prodigals. That's a big part of the story. But the bigger point is you're the older son. The father has given you all of his resources to go out and rescue your prodigal brothers and sisters, and you're sitting on your hands and not doing a thing. And then you get mad when they come home. Now, in 2015, who do you think has been given the resources of the Father to reach the prodigals of the world? I'd suggest it's the church. That God has given us the resources to reach the prodigal. And I would suggest to you further that the quickest way to make a church irrelevant, the quickest way for God to to cause God to turn his back on a church is to lose your love for the prodigal. Say, I'm just not interested anymore. I can tell you this, the most satisfying thing you can do as a Christian, if you're dissatisfied, it's probably because you're not reaching out to people. In fact, in, in this story, in, in John 4, they come to Jesus say, do you want something to eat? He says, look, I have things that satisfy me you don't know anything about. And that was leading these people to Christ. But the most satisfied Christians and churches I know are the ones that are doing what Jesus did here. They're involved in reproducing themselves with the gospel. And so Jesus closes, this whole thing closes with Jesus says, look, don't, don't tell me you're going to wait to the right time and then invest in the harvest. Jesus said, look, the right time is right now. The fields are white. And that's why we moved to the western region of North America. We can see the white harvest fields that are here. And we just want to be a part of reaping that harvest. And we look forward to the possibility of doing that alongside of you. If God would be so pleased. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this story. We thank you that you crossed over to reach down to us. And God, I pray that you'd help us to do the same at work, in school, in our neighborhoods. God, I I pray individually and then corporately you'd help us to be about the business of crossing over with the message of hope the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we pray that many would come to you as a result. We'll give you the praise for it in Jesus' name. Amen.